Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Jim Beard surveys the comic books published by Fiction House. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 5, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, as Mike already said, this is about comic books, so to, uh, to uh, quote uh, Steve Rogers in that elevator, before we get started, does anybody want to get out? <laughs> I, I'm an unapologetic comic book fan, but I was really excited when Mike asked me to do this uh, talk because as much as I'm a Golden Age comic book fan, I love the Justice Society of America through uh, National and, and all of that, I wasn't really familiar with the Fiction House output, so it really gave me an opportunity to dig into a part of comics history that I wasn't really up on. But even better, what I saw was this symbiosis between pulp and comic books, and that's like how I feel. Uh, My father was a huge uh, pulp fan, and Love the Shadow Radio Show and all of that. And he really infused in me a love for the pulps, but also a love for comic books. He was kind of right in there in that, in that time when, when it was all shifting and pulps were on the way out and comic books were you know, getting bigger. So he really infused me with that. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about this era and a company that was doing uh, both. Um, so... Um, Fiction House um, started in 1921. I'm not going to go into Fiction House, the pulp publisher, because you're going to hear plenty about that um, this weekend. But Fiction House, the comic book company, uh, produced work from 1938 to 1954, which is a pretty respectable uh, run. Uh, They had a total number of 31 series and produced... Uh, 826 issues, individual issues of, of comic books. Um, to give you a little um, idea of where they fell when they started doing comic books within the bigger comic book scene, they actually started out in September of 1938, uh, but an action comics number one, um, uh, the first appearance of Superman was June of 1938. So they were right around that same time when they kicked off. So let's see, the guy to the left is John Glenister, the head of Fiction House. And then the guy on the right is is, uh, Thurwin T. Scott, the publisher, uh, who then oversaw the comic books. And that is, of course, um, Glenister's son-in-law. And that is the best picture that I could find of that guy. I'm sorry. Um, the story goes that um, they were interested in getting into comic books because that was a huge growing thing at that time. And they, they supposedly got a call from the Eisner Iger shop. That would be Will Eisner, a name that should be familiar to a lot of people, and Jerry Iger. Uh, who in uh, around 1936 were really working to become uh, packagers. 
that they would produce whole comic books, do everything, and then that could be published by a company. Supposedly they paid a call on a fiction house and struck a deal that they would start putting together comic books. So I'm sure that was a, probably a very attractive deal to fiction house where they didn't have to do that themselves. They had professionals like uh, Eisner and Iger coming in to me, when I was really looking through all of this stuff, it seemed to me that the mission statement, if there was one, for Fiction House was to not reinvent the wheel. It was do the comic books like the pulps. And as we go along, you'll see how really connected they were, even sometimes literally just duplicating uh, the, a pulp title and making it into a comic book uh, form. What I really want to concentrate on, this is not going to be an exhaustive look. I, I want to give you a, more or less a brief look and really hit the high points of Fiction House uh, and especially what they call the big six. They had six titles out of those 31 series, or some of them are one-shots, uh, that they produced that were their big sellers. And I'd like to uh, go through those. So, here's where it all began. Jumbo Comics, number one, uh, 1938. Uh, it ran uh, 167 issues, more than any other Fiction House comic book. Um, Sheena was the big uh, draw. Uh, she started in, in Jumbo Comics. Basically, this whole first issue was already done. Uh, Iger and Eisner uh, had produced work for a British magazine called WAGS, and they basically just transferred everything over to this. The thing that was really interesting to me about this is what, it was tabloid size. It was not the standard Golden Age comic book size at this point. It was actually bigger, uh, what they called tabloid size, and that's why it's called Jumbo, not like Jumbo the Elephant. It was literally because it was a big, big uh, book. Oh, so I love this. There was uh, there were three different stories in Jumbo Number One uh, by. Um, uh, three guys, uh, Kurt Davis, Fred Sand, and Jack Curtis. Except if anybody really, really knows this, it's really fascinating because those guys were actually one guy and he has a somewhat recognizable name of Jack Kirby. This, this is considered, this is Jack Kirby's first comic book work. Um, he had been published, he had illustrations published in Wild Boy magazine, but this was supposedly his actual first comic book work. He did uh, Diary of Dr. Haygard, uh, Wilton of the West, and part one of an adaptation of Count of Monte Cristo. But I love that because he, he used three different names, but all in the same book. So back then it would have made, you know, whoever was reading that, you would think that it was three different guys uh, doing it. One of the other things that I really want to hit as we go through these series is the incredible names that worked for Fiction House, well, or worked for Eiger and Eisner, and in turn worked for Fiction House. Um, I was just amazed at. Now, some of them weren't necessarily big at that time, but their but their uh, their careers grew and they became more recognizable. So. 
in, let's see, in Jumbo number two, which is the red one there, uh, a guy named Bob Powell uh, had work in there. Uh, he did art on Sheena and Mr. Mystic. But later, he actually was the co-writer, I guess co-creator of Blackhawk uh, for um, Quality. I almost said DC. Well, DC, you know. And this is, I love this. He's one of the, uh, considered one of the creators of the Mars Attacks trading cards. I love that. And then uh, over here for Jumbo number four, uh, Lou Fine had work in there. And of course he was the artist known for the, the original Blue Beetle, uh, the Black Condor, Dollman, and Uncle Sam, all for uh, quality. Um, and he, oh, in this book he did Wilton of the West. I guess he kind of took over from Jack Kirby. So Jumbo number nine became regular size. So they had eight issues of tabloid size. Uh, Jumbo number nine became regular size. And uh, just a few more names that, that worked uh, on Jumbo Comics. A guy named Bob Kane might yeah. sound familiar to you. Except he was doing a strip called Peter Pup. Uh, Bob actually was doing more humorous stuff before Batman came along. But he, had, he actually had did Peter Pup in issues 1 through 25. Also, Matt Baker, who is considered the first very important African-American artist in the comic books, the first one that actually had success uh, in it. Uh, he went on to do Phantom Lady, and then also what is, to some people, considered the first graphic novel, uh, a book called It Rhymes With Lust. And don't ask me what the word is that rhymes with lust, because so I, I don't know. There's an example of Peter Pup on the left, and then Matt Make Baker doing Sky Girl. And yes, one of the things that Fiction House Comics was known for, and really known for, was good girl art. Uh, and for very good girl reason. So here, here is Sheena, who is the real, real star here, and as Mike said... Um, a couple things about Sheena that are really fascinating. She predates Wonder Woman. Uh, not by very much, but she does actually predate Wonder Woman, and she is the first female comic book character with her own title. With th that, it's her name is in the title, and uh, um, that was published by uh, Jumbo. She is in every issue of Jumbo magazine, and then she got her spinoff in 1942, and that lasted for ten years. One of their other big characters was, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, is. Ka'anga, which is another jungle type of character, uh, almost as popular, I think, as, as Sheena. Number, the second one of the big six is Jungle Number One, and that lasted for 163 episodes. began in uh, January 1904 and lasted all the way till summer of 54. A couple of big names that appeared in Jungle Comics, George Tusca, uh, fans of Marvel Comics will recognize that name. He worked on the original uh, Captain Marvel for Marvel, and then uh, really, I probably know him best for Iron Man. Uh, that's number eight on the end, I believe. Number seven it, uh, it featured work by Nick Carty, who much later on went to uh, fame and fortune for DC with Teen Titans. And then Jim Mooney had work in number 11 of Jungle, and he went on to be probably pretty well known for Supergirl. And a, and a guy that's near and dear to my heart, 
this is, if you don't know it already, the work of Fletcher Hanks, who to me is the original gonzo artist of the comic books. This is a guy that only worked from 1939 to 1941, but did everything himself, writing, art, lettering. And if you aren't familiar with this guy's work, it's the most insane comic book work ever. And I couldn't describe it even if I had an entire panel to, to talk about this guy's work. But he did uh, Phantoma uh, for uh, Jungle Comics, but uh, he did a lot of his other characters uh, under the Fiction House uh, banner. If you ever get a chance, look this guy's work up. It's like nothing you've ever seen uh, before. I mean, this is pretty tame what you're seeing here, but he had a lot of very strange ideas about uh, uh, how to take care of the criminals and the bad guys in there. You just didn't capture them. The um, His heroes would do things like remove their heads and blow them up to giant size and, and, and all of that. All right, so uh, the third of our big six is Wings, number one. And, of course, that was uh, to emulate the Wings Pulp magazine that Fiction House was doing. This had uh, 124 issues and ran from 1940 to 1954. Uh, Murphy Anderson, another name that might be very recognizable to comic book fans, uh, had his very first comic book work in Wings Magazine in number 48. Um, not only an incredible penciler of his own, but really probably even known better for his inking, and inking uh, over the uh, very, very famous Kurt Swan, considered, like, to me, the Superman artist. Uh, when they worked together, they were actually known as Swanderson. I, I always love that. Okay, so a few people who worked on uh, Wings uh, uh, through the years. Uh, Art Petty worked in number two, and he uh, worked on JSA stories, Justice Society stories for uh, All American, or um, yeah, All American. He is the co creator later of Phantom Lady, and then worked on Jan of the Jungle. Uh, number 84 featured work by Morris Whitman, who uh, probably known for Atomic Mouse and Atomic Rabbit, uh, Wyatt Earp, and then later went on to work on the Warren uh, comic magazines like Creepy and Eerie. And then uh, number 129 featured work by Jack Abel, who was uh, another one of the Superman inkers in the 60s and 70s. And, and I love this, he inked the very first Wolverine story over uh, Herb uh, Trimpe's uh, pencils. Ah, I love this one. So uh, we move on to the fourth uh, of the big six, Fight Comics. Uh, and uh, Fiction House had the pulp called Fight Stories. Uh, this ran 86 issues. So we're dropping, we're dropping down now with how long these ran. But this ran from 40 to 54, 86 issues. Um, to try to describe the comic book is that it hit a little bit of everything. Uh, pretty much almost every genre was represented in fight comics, including superheroes. This was kind of interesting. I was looking up fiction house superheroes, and they're all like public domain now. They, there was, there's not really any superheroes that came out of the, the fiction house stuff that really became well-known, that really would have a recognizable 
name. There's some really fascinating concepts within there, and, and I've known people who have grabbed onto those now and you know worked on them because they're public domain. Um, but I just wanted to stress that Fight Comics was pretty much an, uh, an anything-goes type of uh, comic. Uh, in number seven on that end, uh, featured work by Art Saf, S-A-A-F, who worked for DC, Fiction House, Gold Key, Harvey, and Quality. Uh, number 70 in the middle featured early work by Dick Giordano, uh, who another huge favorite of mine. He went on to become a Charlton Comics editor and then made the move over to DC uh, and uh, did a lot of inking. He he might actually be no more for his inking. And then uh, number 75, I have that up there again, and we already talked about it, but featured work by Matt Baker. Once again, another comic book that's pretty much just emulating the, the pulp thing. Like I said, no reinventing the wheel. They, they were doing things that they were already very comfortable uh, with, with doing. Uh, Planet Comics number one is considered the first full science fiction comic where the whole thing was all science fiction. Uh, it ran for 73 uh, issues. It was a spin-off of the Pulp Magazine, January 1940 through winter of 53. And if there was any home for good girl art at Fiction House Comics, it was this book. Interestingly enough, it is not just uh, damsel in Distress and Burly Muscular Hero Rescuing That Damsel. There is a whole lot of examples of the reverse of that. In a time where that really wasn't the norm, uh, Fiction House comics are considered pre-feminist before that was ever a thing, that they not only had that representation on covers, of that reversal of roles where, where there was a, a strapping female who was like the hero of the scene. They actually had a lot of female characters who were not shrinking violets. Sheena being one of the great examples of that, but there are plenty more. Uh, so if there are anybody who's looking for that in Golden Age comics, you know, look no further than, than Fiction House. Uh, Will Eisner actually did early covers uh, for Planet Comics, so he wasn't just you know, working in the office, he was actually uh, doing some artwork uh, for them. Uh, Planet Comics number 13 featured work by the great Reed Crandall, who went on to do Blackhawk for quality, uh, and a lot of EC Comics work. And he also did his first comic book art for Fiction House. So a lot of these guys, this is where they found their first work. Uh, number 23 uh, featured work by Lee Elias, who was uh, known for the Black Cat at Harvey. Uh, if you're familiar with the Black Cat Marvel character, that's much later on. This is the original Black Cat character. He also worked for Timely, which of course was the precursor to Marvel Comics. And uh, for uh, DC, he worked on the uh, Jay Garrick Golden Age Flash character and is considered a creator of the villain, the Fiddler. And then uh, Planet Comics number 42, again, again uh, feature work by Murphy Anderson. This is kind of interesting because I couldn't dig down and really confirm this, but 
Jerry ba Dr. Jerry Bales, who is considered one of the preeminent historians of comic books, had a, had a legendary uh, book uh, that was the Who's Who of American comic books. He said that um, Planet Comics featured work by a very recognizable name to all of us, Walter B. Gibson, and Frank Belknap Long. And I would assume everybody's familiar with him um, being, uh, if you're, especially if you're a Lovecraft fan, he was considered a very good friend and mentor to H.P. Lovecraft. I could not confirm that. I, I'm trusting Dr. Bales, who the late Dr. Bales, but um, if that's true, that's pretty cool that uh, that uh, the shadows Walter P. Gibson actually did writing work for that. And and uh, what are we on number five or number? No, this is number six. So we get down to Ranger Comics, the last of the big six. It ran for 58 issues, which is not bad, uh, December 42 through winter uh, 53. I love this because um, so many comic books changed titles or uh, uh, picked up numbering from another book. It, there was all these wild and crazy things that doesn't seem to make much sense to us today, but uh, at some point somebody... It made sense to somebody. This book actually began as a comic for Fiction House called Rangers of Freedom Comics. And then it ran for as Rangers. Uh, and then, oh, Rangers Comics. And then it was just called Rangers. Uh, it featured a pretty popular character named Firehair, uh, which was a Western uh, character. Rangers are pretty much a, a, a war comic. Uh, number 10 on that side featured work by Graham Ingalls, who uh, worked on a lot of EC books. And uh, number 16 featured work by Ruben Moriera, who uh, did Tarzan comic book work, and then the character Roy Raymond for DC. And... Not only was Fiction House known for its female characters, but actually for female creators, and probably one of the most prominent of them, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with this name, is Lily Renee. Um, uh, she was one of the first female comic book artists. Uh, she has a fascinating backstory if you want to look her up. She was Austrian, and she actually escaped from the Nazis to come to the United States and be a comic book artist. So once we're past the, the big six, I, I want to give you a, 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 some flavor of what else uh, Fiction House produced. And, and again, they hit the, the genres that you wouldn't have expected back in the golden age of time. So they had westerns, uh, books like Longbow, uh, one just called Indians, one just called Apache, and then there's our fire hair. So not only was fire hair in uh, Rangers, but then she also had her own book. Uh, I, I think almost all the Fiction House covers are just fantastic. If you really look through the, the spread of Golden Age comic book covers, I really think that they had some really, just really top-notch work that probably really stood out on the, uh, on the stands to kids. Uh, they had uh, their war comics, so Warbirds, 
Jet Aces, and then of course Planet Comics. I put I put this up here. These last two. Do you see anything familiar? Yeah. Isn't it Isn't it fun? I love when this happens. So they took the Jet from Jet Aces. Now this is not Fiction House over here. This Planet Comics. This is actually a comic company called H. John Edwards, who was a guy, of course, who was Australian, and he was producing both original and reprints, but they actually got a hold of that art and reused the jet, and I love it because the other jets are gone, and now that jet is fighting flying saucers for, for the Australian version of Planet Comics. It's just one of those, you know, things that they could have gotten away with then, but nobody would sit still for that today. I love this title. This is probably my favorite title of any fiction house book. Man O Mars. Not Man of Mars, but Men of Mars. I just love that cover too. That's obviously the She-Hulk down here. Yeah, and I John Hunter of the of the Mars men. Uh, that was 1953. It was one issue. I mean, it was like such a cool title that they just, it blew everybody's minds and they couldn't do another issue of it. But, you know, that happened a lot back in the day where there was literally just one issue uh, of something. This is another fun one, The Monster. It's literally just called The Monster. And it was only two issues uh, back then. That was also in 1953. Knockout Adventures, uh, that was 53-54, it was like winter 53-54, again, just one issue, uh, and that says it features Rip Carson. This is a really fascinating comic book. When I really started digging into this one, it's like it made me want to find these there was only four issues of this. It ran from 46 to 47. And what the main story did was it was a comic book adaptation of big movies or current movies then. They adapted things like the movie Big Town, uh, White Tie and Tails. I don't know what kid would want to read the comic book adaptation of White Tie and Tails, but I'm sure some. Uh, and then this, I love this one. They actually did a comic book adaptation of Love Laughs at Andy Hardy. <laughs> I, I could see me buying that and then quickly trading it to some kid down the street. That's an, another oddball one. Toyland Comics in 1947. Uh, only three issues. It was described as fantasy stories for kids. Uh, and then First Christmas was a one-shot, 1953, and it was a three-dimensional comic, and you did get uh, 3D glasses with it. Uh, this is a Kelly uh, Freeze, Freeze, Freeze cover on this one. You can't really see it that well. It's too bad because for such a, an incredible artist, it's kind of obscured with that weird shape, and it's well, it's kind of dark in this one. They, were, they did a lot of 3D one-shots. 3D Circus in 1953. Again, you got the glasses, just one issue. And then, I mean, if you have Sheena all over the place, I mean, why not have, you know, right? 3D Sheena. Yeah, I can tell you that one sold very well with the little boys. Uh, that 
featured reprints that they, you know, obviously just did the 3D process on. And I love, I love this one. I wrote this in my notes. Rank has its privileges. So Will Eisner was able to put a spirit comic book through Fiction House. Uh, it was 55 issues, pardon me, five issues, 1952 to 54. And what it did is it just reprinted the work from the newspapers, the supplements, the, you know, his special section or whatever. But, um, but an early example of reprinting that stuff, but, but through Fiction House. So here's what happened to Fiction House and how this story ends. They produced their last comics in 1954, and for people who really know 1954 and comic books history, that is, of course, the introduction of the dreaded Comics Code Authority. Uh, there was a lot of uh, kerfuffle uh, about the uh, impact of comic books on children. Uh, most of it trumped up and uh, led by uh, an interesting guy named Frederick Wortham. Interestingly enough, Fiction House was one of the companies targeted by Wortham. Uh, and, of course, for what? For the sexy women in, in their covers and in their books. Uh, they were specifically singled out uh, for that. So if you're not familiar what happened, uh, to avoid a lot of trouble, uh, and uh, the comic book companies got together and decided to create a body that they were basically going to police themselves so that the government didn't police them. And a whole bunch of rules were drawn up, and comic books kind of had their teeth taken out uh, by that point. Um, and so Fiction House decided that it was just no longer a good environment uh, in the comic books industry to be publishing comic books, and they published their last that very same year. And that was the end of Fiction House Comics. But an incredible, an incredible, to me, corner of comic book history. And that's that. Thank you. I won't be taking any questions. I'm sorry. No. I'm gonna. I'll try. I'll try. Like I said, this is this was an air, the thing that was, air was new to me. So if there are any questions, I will give it the old college try, and I'll probably embarrass myself. Were you, were you raising your hand? Oh, they put it down. No, no questions. Whew, I did a good job. Oh no, David. David Saunders is asking me a question. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fluff this one. What? Uh, I just wanted to, of maybe maybe like ninety names that you mentioned of artists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just I don't know, in terms of research and stuff, like uh, eighty of them were pulp artists also. Just in case you, just for your information. I, and I admit it, I was concentrating on the, the guys that went on to really have a name in comic books, so I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. In comic books, they actually were working Okay. People you were mentioning, I mean, almost all of them. Okay. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of illustrations for regular pulps that they do also. Well, that just shows that this pulps and comic books, you know. Um, it wasn't all happening off site that they either. Mm -hmm. Studio, like shop, which it seems like it was, but they actually were also working freelance for the folks. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, very, very much so.
Yes. I uh, I love fiction house comic books, and uh, one thing that I've noticed about them that is very different from pretty much every other publisher, I've noticed that the cover artwork has a lot more depth and vivid color than pretty much everyone else, almost as if they have like a, a grayscale process added to the normal just four color process. And the inside covers were usually printed with two colors, mm-hmm. which no other publisher did. Uh, do you know anything about that? Is that a, a relic of, of the pulpit? No, I, I would assume so, but but I did, I, like I said, I have, when I was going through everything, I just noticed that the quality of the covers is just amazing through yeah, through all of them, you know. Yeah. I, I'd like to think that Fiction House, you know, wanted the best looking covers on, on the, you know, the stands, and, and but I don't really know, you know, if that was how purposeful that was that they, if they did that. But yes, the color work, and even on these, you know, images that I pulled uh, up, some of the colors are just amazing on those, especially the, um, the Planet uh, comics. At Windy City, Roger Hill uh, spoke about T.T. Scott. I believe he did an interview with him. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, Scott, and I've read this elsewhere, uh, on popes, on the popes and the comics, he approved almost all the the covers. Okay. So I think that he knew mm-hmm. that they were very important to selling both the yeah. magazines and the comic books. Yeah. So they're they're you know the same guy who's overseeing the pulp covers, and you know I could see why that happened then. Thank you, Mike. Yes. Your uh, really your comment about her being one of the first comic female writers. Uh, uh, artist L- yes. Lily Renee, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was really intriguing. She's still alive. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope that you know we've gotten every bit of her story out of her by now. But again, I would urge everybody, you know, if you're interested in in that at all, to really look into again her story uh, about how she, you know she escaped. The Nazis in Austria and and came here and and really is so important in the development of uh, women in the comic book industry. Lily Renee with the accent mark. I think I think, I think uh, there was recently an art show, maybe in New York. Did you know with with her work? Uh, I think I did know. I did know that. If you want to start somewhere, comics historian Trina Robbins has a lot to say about the Fiction House um, presentation uh, of women, and that would be a a really great place to to start if you're intrigued also by uh, all of the strong female characters they had and then that really incredible phenomenon where there was almost just as many women saving the day on covers as, as men. God, I keep doing I'm that. Glad, I'm glad you did, but I've noticed that as well. Uh, on the pulps as well, on, on the planet comics, you mm-hmm. often have a woman saving a man. Yeah. I, I would, my, my planet stories, I, I would love to see the numbers, like the sales numbers. Does anything change when they have a woman saving the day on it from... 
you know, just like uh, DC figured out that putting a gorilla on the cover and the sales, you know, shot up. So, thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.